Our Father, I was reading this morning in Ecclesiastes that insanity is in the hearts of men. And we look around and we see it everywhere. We, we shake our heads in amazement. How foolish it is to rebel against you. How foolish it is to go against you. Our very existence is dependent on you. And the fact is, Lord, we have all been against you. None of us sought you. You sought us. We love you because you first loved us. You said to your disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. We are humbled that we are redeemed. We are humbled that our sins have been forgiven. We are humbled that we have heard the gospel and that your spirit worked in such a way as to draw us to yourself. We are humbled that Jesus died in our place and that because of what he did for us, our sins have been forgiven and we are put into a family relationship legally that can never be changed. We have been given eternal life. We don't get eternal life when we die. We've been given it already. We've been born again. And we are thankful that you save us. You saved us when you went to the cross. You saved us when you regenerated us. And you just keep on saving us, Lord. You just keep saving us. Walking in here tonight, I had a guy share with me how his day went. And he was just elated because he had seen you work. Now, we don't see that in such dramatic form every day. But there are days where it's so clear. We are blessed men. Our futures are secure because of what Christ has done. We're living in turbulent times. We're living in troubled times. But because we know you and because you have given us the truth, we can have peace in our hearts. You said in the world we'll have trouble. But you said we could have peace because you've overcome the world. <clears throat> We pray that tonight you'll give us perspective. Uh, as things continue to fall apart, as things continue to get worse and worse, never has there been in our lifetimes a more strategic time for men who simply follow you to be used by you. Not because of any great exploits we do, but because we simply follow you. And we love our wives. And we are fathering our kids. And we are doing our work. And we are tending our land and our spheres. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We thank you that you lead us in paths of righteousness.
Thank you that when we stray and we get off course, your spirit convicts us and you pull us back to yourself. Help us tonight, Lord, each one of us, help me to be teachable. Help me, Lord, to see through my blind spots that I haven't seen through before. I'm so quick to criticize others and I give myself so much room. But open my eyes. Help me to see what others see that I haven't seen up until now. Help me to deal with my stuff. Help us all to do that. Thank you for your patience and your loving kindness with us. Instruct us and teach us by your spirit. We count on that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're working through, we're, we're calling this study Point Man. That's a book I did 25 years ago. And without rehashing too much, Point Man was a book I did on how a man can spiritually lead his family. This is something that fathers are supposed to teach their sons. But if your father did not teach you how to be a spiritual leader, a lot of guys resent that, but you can't be too tough on your dad because if he didn't show you that, um, if he didn't show you how to be a spiritual leader, it's probably because his father didn't show him and perhaps his father didn't show him and his father didn't show him. Perhaps you're the first one in your family and generations to, to know Christ. So the closer we get to Christ, the closer we get around to the, to the, to the scriptures, and the closer we get around to men who are walking with the Lord, all of those things the Lord uses to teach us how to become the leaders that he wants us to be. Uh, the Bible says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. So we're all in a process of maturing and growing. And the chapter that I dealt with last week at Appointment was the chapter that I called Husband and Wife Teamwork. Uh, in the book, I called it In the Marriage 747, because at the time, it seemed like all the people that were in our lives, when you took my kids and you took the teams they were on, and uh, the coaches and their friends and their school buddies and the camps and our extended family and our doctors and our dentists and our CPAs and our insurance agents and this and that, when you take everybody that's in our lives, you could fill a 747. We could, you could too. And, uh, and, and Mary and I are trying to fly this plane. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. And you got all these people in your life and, and you're both flying this monstrous plane. That's kind of how I viewed it. And as I said last week, you know, this is interesting, this whole marriage thing. Weddings are easy, marriage is hard. Um, Marriage is extremely difficult. The other thing, not only is it difficult, but it's under attack. And you know that, and I know it. We, we are living in remarkable, stunning times. We truly are. Uh, if we're not careful, we can lose our perspective. Because things are changing so rapidly, aren't they?
It's just remarkable how fast they're changing. I mean, freedom of religion. It's on its way out the door. Freedom of speech. See ya. All these things that we have enjoyed and appreciated and assumed would always be in place are being destroyed before our eyes. We have been tsunamied. It's quite remarkable. And once again, I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> but you're thinking about it, and I'm thinking about it. It's, it's just where we are. Um, so I want to turn back to where we were last week, to Ephesians chapter 5. And I only dealt with a couple chapters, uh, actually with a couple of verses. I want to read from 21 to 33 of Ephesians 5 tonight, as we're talking about husband and wife, teamwork, in marriage. Now, okay, some of you guys are married. Um, most of you guys are married. Some of you guys are divorced. Some of you guys who are divorced, uh, you didn't want to divorce, but where we are right now, we have so weakened the laws about marriage. We used to have very strong laws to keep marriage in place because as a culture, we felt marriage was very, very important. But with all the changes that started happening in the 60s, we weakened marriage, made it very, very easy to divorce. You can divorce on a whim. Um, and that's happened to some of you guys. Nothing you could do to stop it. We have other guys in here and you were the ones that instituted the divorce and you didn't have biblical grounds. And it's too late to go back and try to repair things because your wife's remarried. What do you do with that? I've had guys ask me, you know, it, it's my fault. What happened was my fault. What do you do? You, you run to Christ and you repent. That was sin. Well, Jesus died for that sin as he died for every sin. We all have things in our life we wish that we never did, but we did them, and there are consequences. So we run to Christ, we receive forgiveness, we receive his mercy. Um, as Paul put it so clearly, and if anyone could have lived a life of regret, if anyone could have been paralyzed into inaction every day of his life because of his past, it was the Apostle Paul who not only held the coats of the men who killed Stephen, but who was an activist in hunting down Christians, um, making sure they were put in jail. Uh, some of the others besides Stephen undoubtedly were martyred. How much of his life did he spend doing that until he ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus? And uh, his whole life was changed. But he could have been paralyzed by his past, but he wasn't. He said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the high calling of Christ. You see? The enemy loves to paralyze us, so we don't look to ourselves, we look to Jesus. Was it Robert Murray McChain who said that for every, for every look that you take at yourself, 
and shake your head. Does stuff ever come to you during the day? Do you ever just have a little thought come into your mind of something you did in the past? Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me frequently. I thought of something today. I hadn't thought of in years. It just came into my mind, something I'd done, and I just shook my head. I thought, what an idiot. And, and McChain said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. <coughs> that helps me. That helps me. So, some of you are married. Some of you um, are divorced for the reasons I mentioned. Uh, some of you are widowed. Um, some of you are single. You've never been married. You say, this doesn't apply to me. You don't know that. A year from now, you might be married. You don't know what God's going to do. I mean, you're ugly, but there could be a girl. <laughs> there could be a girl who comes along and she thinks she sees something in you. I mean, God does miraculous things, guys. You don't know where you're going to be in a year. We just don't know, do we? So as we talk about this marriage stuff, no matter where you are in life, let's listen up. Okay? Because we do know this. If you're married, the enemy wants to come after you. He's got a twofold strategy. Number one, he wants to alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your wife, no matter how well you're doing right now. So we've always got to be on guard for our marriages. Always. And he wants to alienate and sever the relationship we enjoy with our kids. And some of us, you know, we have more than one adult child, and maybe one or two of your kids are walking with the Lord. You got one that's in rebellion against the Lord. You know, it's just someone's always in crisis. We're always on our knees before the Lord. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to connect. Help me to father. Help me to be wise. Help me to say the right thing. Help me to know when not to say anything. We're just dependent on him, but we're in a battle. So with that in mind, Ephesians 5, I want to pick it up. I want to pick it up in 15. Just because it fits. Therefore, I love this. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Gosh, we could just quit right there, couldn't we? Is that, not, is that not a nugget? It is. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men. Shoot, we've all done that. That's, that's our default position. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise Making the most of your time because the days are evil. And we'd all say amen to that. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, I love this because Christians... You know, Christians break up into different camps when you start talking about the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we got our different groups and our different practices and all this. But when the Scripture talks about the filling of the Spirit, and oh, and, and, and different believers get in different debates about the signs of being filled with the Spirit, and, uh, you know, we look at different Scriptures, and that's all well and good with family discussions, you know. 
But now he's going to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk about the evidence, the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was raised in a denomination, and they had a real clear-cut evidence of how you knew you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it had nothing to do with this passage. But that was their only evidence. And later in life, I started reading this, and I thought, gosh, what about this? Let's read it. Don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled has the idea of control. When it talks about being filled with the Spirit, it, talks, it means to be controlled. And contextually, uh, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because when you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by wine. When you're controlled by wine, you say things you normally wouldn't say. You do things you normally wouldn't do. Okay? So don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled or be controlled with the Spirit. Now watch the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is interesting. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Do you ever find yourself sometime driving in the car or you're just by yourself and a hymn will come to you, a worship song or something, and there's nobody around and you're just kind of humming it and singing it? You ever do that? That's an evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. An old hymn. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty, the beauty of thy character, fills my soul. For by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Up from the grave he arose with the mighty boom. Obviously, I'm the only guy in the room filled with the Spirit here tonight. <laughs> That's a sign of being controlled by the Spirit of God. You're just singing in your heart, okay? Um, oh, here's another one. Um, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's interesting. Because a lot of times we don't like where we are in life. I got a text from a guy this afternoon who I've been talking with earlier in the day, and he was really in some disappointing circumstances. Then he texted me and he said, You know, I just, you don't need to text me back. I just want to confess to you my wrong attitude. I'm looking at this the wrong way. Uh, he said, I just wanted to tell you that. He said, I know God's at work. I should be thankful that he's at work. That's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. See? Is it, what does that say? Always giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to God the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then note verse 22. It's, then it talks to wives. Oh, and then note verse 25. It talks to husbands. And then note uh, 6 1. It talks to children. And then in verse 4 of 6, it talks to fathers. And then in verse 5, it talks to those who were slaves in the Roman Empire, who were Christians. Okay. <laughs> because they were all in positions where something was required of them, and the only way that they could pull it off was to be, watch this, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Now, 
flip over to Colossians 3 real quick. I want to show you something really interesting. Colossians 3.16. You said, you said, you said, Steve, I thought we are going to talk about marriage. We, we are. We're just kind of... This is kind of the food, uh, this is kind of the food channel tonight. We're putting a recipe together. All right, we're getting some ingredients together to show how we have good teamwork in a husband and wife relationship. Uh, look at verse 16. Here's some more ingredients. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. All right, my question is, how do I know when the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me? Well, it's going to give me some characteristics of what happens in my life when the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me. So let's look at what they are. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Watch this. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, gosh, didn't we just read that? That was in Ephesians 5. See, that's one of the traits of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's interesting. Oh, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, that's interesting. That's the same trait that's when I let the word of Christ richly dwell within me. It's the same trait as when I am been, I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. Oh, and then note verse 18. He's talked to wives. Then in verse 19, he talks to husbands. And then in the next verse, he talks to children. And in 21... He talks to fathers, and in 22, he talks to slaves. I find that fascinating. I took a course in college called Logic. And when I take the principles of Logic, and I apply them to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, and when I see that when the Scripture says, be filled with the Spirit, and then I see certain characteristics that are true in my life when I'm filled with the Spirit, and then I see that in Colossians 3, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And I see traits that let me know that the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me. And the traits are the same in Colossians 3 as they are in Ephesians 5. You know what that tells me? It's the same thing. Being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, what does that mean? It's letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you because the Spirit and the Word always work together, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to control me and change my behavior. I find that fascinating. And, and he takes it immediately into the home, the filling of the Spirit. I, there are all kinds of conferences that you can attend on the Holy Spirit in this ministry and this ministry. When he talks about the Holy Spirit and he talks about the Word of God, you know, it's easy to be spiritual here. It's easy to act spiritual here. I never had trouble being spiritual in church. My problem, my difficulty has always been being spiritual on the way to church. Especially when my kids were little. And I was the pastor. And we're always 15 minutes late leaving the house. I mean, every Sunday without fail, we're 15 minutes late. I get them, I get them up three, I can get them all up at 3 a.m. And we're supposed to be there at 8.30. And I'm telling you, we're not leaving the house till 8.45. You know what I'm talking about. So you finally get them in the car. You know, Josh comes down here. He's got a red sock and a green sock. It's not Christmas. I mean, he's three years old. You know, John spilled apple juice. I mean, it's always chaos. It's just chaos. 
You're just trying to get him in the car. You get him in the car, you buckle him in, you strap him in, you chain him in. You're just trying to get, I'm, start, I'm driving a 55 and a 25. It looks like the chase scene and bullet through the hills of San Francisco. I'm just trying to get to church. I'm sweating. The kids start arguing in the back seat. I'm driving like this, separating them. I come screaming into the parking lot, pull into a spot, get out. There's a, an elderly lady. She says, oh, pastor, how are you today? I go, praise God, I'm good. How are you? It's so nice to see you. And my kids see that. It's easy to be spiritual at church. He wants me to be spiritual on my way to church and at home. Christianity is what you are at home. The filling of the Spirit is designed for your home life. It's the way he talks about wives, husbands, children, fathers. Okay. With that context, let's go to 18. He says, oh, I'm in Colossians 3. I want to go back to Ephesians 5. He uh, Let's go back to 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, himself being the Savior of the body. We talked about this last week. Now, I need to say something about 21, because there is... Um, there, there is a, a strong movement within the evangelical church, and I, and I talk about this, I talked about this just a little bit last week, that basically says, no, the husband is not head of the wife. They're, they're both equals before the Lord, which is true. And then if you flip over, keep your finger there, go to Galatians 3, they say, oh no, he, he's, he's really not the head um, because of Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. See, no, the husband isn't the wife because of Galatians 3.28. Well, Galatians 3.28 is not talking about marriage. Galatians 3.28 is talking about the fact that as believers, there's no distinction between anybody who is in Christ. You see? We're all one in the Lord. We, we, we've all been redeemed. We all have equal privileges We've been adopted into his family. It's talking about something completely different. But within our human, so it's talking about the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church of Christ. But that doesn't negate what is taught in Ephesians chapter 5, because there are different relationships in life, and we hit this last week, we're among equals in order, in, in order for institutions to function among equals, someone is given authority and there is a hierarchy of relationship and someone is put in charge and someone is to follow. So this is true in the family. It's true where you work. You might be middle management or you might be on your way. Maybe you're about to get a promotion to be executive vice president. Well, you still got someone over you, don't you? Yeah, you report to the president. Well, man, if I was president, I don't have to report to anybody. No, he's got a board of directors. Everybody reports to somebody. Everybody's accountable to somebody. Um, that's just how it works in life. 
Okay. Okay. So let's go back to Ephesians 5. Husband and wife teamwork. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, we're going to clarify what this means in a minute, because there are two... Um, there are two mistakes that men can make in their role as husbands. We'll get to them in a minute. Okay? So we're going to clarify what that means. Uh, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are some who say, no, the husband's not the head. And I'm talking about evangelical Christians. No, the husband's not the head. That word means source. It really doesn't mean source, but they want it to mean source. Um, it means head. Christ is head of the church. He's not the source of the church. He's head of the church. Um, well, it says we're up in 21. We're to be subject to one another. That's mutual submission. Well, it is mutual submission, but it doesn't mean that husbands and wives take, take turns being the head. The husband's the head. He's been appointed as head. The husband is never told to submit to his wife. He is told to love his wife as Christ loves the church. You see? That is the governor that keeps his authority in check and in balance so that he doesn't abuse authority. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy, she would be holy and blameless. 28. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Do you abuse your body? No. Then don't abuse your wife. See? He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm seeking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Okay. Um, this is marriage. Marriage is, God invented marriage, God invented the family. And we made the statement, if God invented the family, he knows how to make it work. If God invented marriage, he knows how to make it work. Now, we're living in a time of insanity. And things are being done, things are, there's an attempt to do things with marriage that, that has never been done before in the history of the world, and this is insane. God owns marriage, God invented marriage, God has the copyright, he has the patent, God owns marriage, and you can't play with it. You can, to your own destruction. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Um, we're attempting to redefine this. But God owns marriage. God owns the family. We are so far gone from what God intended that what I want to do here for a minute, just very quickly, um, I want to give you Family 101, okay? And what I'm going to give to you is so basic 
and it's out of the scripture. It is so basic, yet what I'm going to give to you is so radical in terms of the world's thinking that, um, well, just let me give it to you. Let's talk about Family 101, okay? You have a husband and a wife. Now, that, even that right there, that's radical in this day and age. That's how far gone we are. But God says, if you look in the opening chapters of Genesis, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave, shall adhere, shall cling to his wife. Marriage is only male-female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So you have, how do you get a family? You have a husband and you have a wife. Um, and then that's one of the creation ordinances. And then God told the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. So one of the other creation ordinances is that he wanted them to have children. Uh, Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're also a mighty inconvenience. <laughs> but they're a blessing from the Lord because when you have them, uh, I mean, you don't sleep for like 12 years. And you don't even know where you are. And you're trying to function without sleep and little kids and somebody's always sick and yelling, screaming. It's great. Uh, but that's life. Um, this is Family 101. Um, now, I, I, in fact, I'm going to turn back to Genesis. Now, I want to make a statement, and this is radical. I'm going to make two radical statements, all right? Every family needs two things. Number one, every family needs provision. They need food, clothing, shelter. Somebody's got to make the money. Someone's got to pay the bills. Someone's got to buy the groceries. Someone's got to keep the heat on, okay? Um, that's provision. The other thing that a family needs is care, C-A-R-E. Because we're human beings, and we have needs, and we have emotions, and we have fears, and little kids get scared in the middle of the night, and little kids are just little kids, and the world's a big place, and so they need to be cared for, correct? Sure they do. Okay, now, so they, you got families, you got a husband, wife, you've got, um, got two things, you gotta have provision and you gotta care. Now here's my radical statement. God has designed things in such a way that he calls the man to be the primary provider. Sorry, I was just ducking. Because that's radical. God has called men to be the primary providers of their families. Is it 1 Timothy 5? If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. Uh, and notice this. Oh, and here's the second one. God has called the woman to be the primary caregiver. I mean, a lot of people would have major problems with those two statements. A lot of Christians would have major problems with those two statements. Now, I want to show you something. In Genesis... When sin came into the world and the, and the woman was tempted and then she uh, talked to her husband and he went along with it, there were three curses. One was put on the serpent, one was put on the woman, one was put on the man. <clears throat> the woman and the man were each 
cursed in their area of primary responsibility. Okay. Does the provision and care thing make sense? You've got to have provision. You've got to have care. All right. And God has determined that the man is to be the primary provider. He's determined the wife is to be the primary caregiver. It doesn't mean that the husband never gives care. It doesn't mean the wife doesn't or can't help in some way with provision. But we're talking primary roles. Okay? Now, look at verse 16. After sin came into the world, in, I'm in 3.16 of Genesis, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in your career. That's not what it says. It says, I will greatly multiply your, chain, your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And then it goes on and says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's headship. Um, there is a great note that I was going to try and summarize out of the ESV study Bible. And I decided it was so good. I'm just going to read it to you. Okay. Listen to this. In, in term, and then I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and hit something. I want to talk about the he shall rule over you. ESV Study Bible says, These words from the Lord indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. This especially takes the form of inordinate desire on the part of the wife and domineering, and domineering rule on the part of the husband. The Hebrew term here translated desire is rarely found in the Old Testament, but it appears again in Genesis 4-7 in a statement that closely parallels 3-16, the one we just read. That is where the Lord says to Cain, just before Cain's murder of his brother, that sin's desire is for you, i.e. to master Cain, and that Cain must rule over it, which he immediately fails to do by murdering his brother, as seen in 4-8. I know that's a little complicated. Similarly, the ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God will have disastrous consequences for their relationship, which therefore makes husband and wife teamwork difficult. Okay? Back to the SV Study Bible. One, Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plans for Adam's leadership in marriage. And two, but Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over her. Thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing, damaging conflict between, between husband and wife in marriage. This is why husband and wife teamwork is difficult. You've got ten, you've got two sinful people. And unless, jumping to Ephesians 5... You've got two people in a marriage that desire both to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You're going to have nuclear war. Right? Unless you've got two people who want to be controlled by the Word of Christ, this is going to be incredibly difficult. This is why marriages don't make it. Maybe you've got one member of the, of the marriage that wants to be submitted to Christ and is in submission and is letting the Word of Christ but the other partner is not. And they torpedo the marriage. Not that the other one doesn't have fault, but they're not willing to work it through. They just exit. They just leave. Some of you guys are there. Okay. 
Well, I want you to notice the woman was cursed in her area of primary responsibility. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Why? Because the woman was given primary responsibility to care for children. Now, you know what's interesting, as I attempt to put my microphone back on without anybody noticing, is that our culture rejects all of this. Our culture rejects Genesis. We reject the idea of Adam and Eve. We reject that God owns Mary. We just flat out reject it. But I'll tell you something. When there's crisis, it's amazing how people revert to their God-given roles. Uh, the responsibility given to the husband is to be the primary provider. If you look at verse 17, then Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife, the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Watch this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, you were dust, and to dust you, re you shall return. Uh, Adam worked before the fall. He told the garden, but he never dealt with thorns and thistles. And he didn't have to work by the sweat of his brow because there was a prosperity and abundance from God because there was no sin. But as soon as sin hit, everything changed. He was cursed in the area of his primary responsibility, which is provision. You ever get stressed at work? That is a result of this. You're not a farmer, but you're still living with thorns and thistles. You deal with difficult people. You're trying to put a deal together. You're trying to do this. And we're always dealing with struggling. We're always with crisis. You're sweating. You're worried you can't sleep at night. Why? Because of this. Okay. So our culture wants to reject this concept, especially the husband's primary provider. Now, here's what our culture does. Um, you got to have provision. You got to have care. In our culture, we love affluence. We love stuff. We love things. What tends to happen in our oh, by the way, this is always interesting. A couple gets married and then they have a baby. We we had a young couple next door to us for several years. And they graduated from college, bought their first house, which was next door to us. And they were both professionals making good money and living a nice life. Uh, bought a new house, furnished it. I mean, they had two incomes. They were doing pretty well. <clears throat> and then she got pregnant. And I thought, this is going to be real interesting, just to watch them from next door. And they were Christians. And um, we didn't know them real well, but, you know, see them from time to time. And at a certain point, months went by. And I was in the backyard, and she was talking to Mary, and Mary said, hey, I'm going to go inside just for a minute. And I said, oh, great. And then he came out. He says, yeah, why don't you come in? And they showed us the baby room. And this gal had worked. I, I'd never seen a, a room for a baby like that. I mean, it was like baby architectural digest. <coughs> I mean, everything, the curtains and the Kleenex and the, I mean, it, it all just met. Everything just worked. The care, the thought, the, the designer crib, the designer diapers, the... I mean, she'd put hours figuring this thing out. And Mary's talking to her, oh, this is, this is wonderful, and this is, you know, and I'm, I'm there with the guy, and we're talking, and we're bored, and 
you know, we're talking about something else because we're guys. But they're into it. They're talking. And Mary said, so when are you doing? She's, oh, I'm due in three weeks. And, well, that's great. That's exciting, you know. Let us, you know. And as we're walking out, she said, oh, Mary, can I ask you something? Um, do you know of anyone who could care for my baby? I thought that was fascinating. Kind of as an afterthought. After the designer room and this and that and all the colors and, and, and Ralph Lauren and Polo and Banana Republic and whoever else was in there. Nordstrom, I don't know who else. They were all in there. As we're walking out, kind of a, oh, by the way, Mary, do you know of anyone who could care for my baby? The most important thing in the world was really low on the list. There's nothing more important in the world than who's going to care for your baby. But see, I shouldn't be bringing this up because it might offend somebody. She was going to go back to work within weeks after having that baby. Now, some people are going to hear this, and I'm going to get emails. You know, you're judging me, all that stuff. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what I observed. And here's what I'm saying to you. A family needs provision, and a family needs care, and we got to watch ourselves in this culture because when you get a husband in provision and you get a wife in provision and you're living the good life and then suddenly you got a baby, suddenly you got a question. The question is, who's going to care for this child? And if you're both in provision, you got an issue. G.K. Chesterton said, why is it an important career? Why is it an important career to teach and educate someone else's child and not educate your own? This is family 101. Um, so Mary and I, we got married. She's a seminary graduate, intelligent, sharp. She's a leader. And we decided early on, before we had kids, that I was going to be the provider and she was going to nurture those kids and give them the care. And we made some sacrifices. And for a long time, we had one car. And we didn't eat out a lot. And, and, we, were, and we were fine with it. And we were blessed. But every once in a while, it was interesting because Mary would go somewhere and, you know, pay with a card, and she would tell me about this, and as she's doing it, they used to, uh, they would say, uh, can you give us a work number? And she'd say, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I don't work. And she would notice a disapproving glance. Or sometimes they'd just come out and say, well, what do you do all day? Now, she's a gifted, intelligent, sharp leader, Mary is. You know, Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. And she was telling me about this, and I said, you know, Mary, the next time somebody says to you, what do you do all day? Next time they diminish your role as a mother, why don't you do this? Do this for me. Next time they say, well, you're at home, what do you do all day? Why don't you just say, you know, I raise leaders for the next generation. What kind of work do you do? 
market potato chips? <laughs> now, she wouldn't say that because she's sweet. But you see, we're all, out of, we're all out of sync here. We think it's so significant for a woman to have a career and be as stressed out as her husband. But if you have kids, someone's got to care for the kids. And then I'm going to really maybe upset some people here. Well, my kids are in daycare. Well, you might really want to think that through because they're desperate to hire just about anybody. And I'm not saying there aren't some good people working there, but I'm saying there are bad apples everywhere, and you better be real careful. I'm watching this with my kids. I'm watching this with my daughter and her husband and their little 15-month-old baby about the care. You see? Because notice I said the husband's to be the primary provider and the wife is to be the primary caregiver. It is. I remember when I was a pastor and we had these little kids and, uh, man, money was tight and I was in this little tiny church and they, didn't, they wanted to have a choir and all that. Well, Mary has a music degree. And they said, hey, what if Mary got the worship thing going and led the choir and we'll pay her part-time. So you know what would happen? My day off was Monday. I'd go home and Mary would go to the office and she'd work on all the music and get it ready and I'd care for the kids. See, it doesn't mean that a wife can't help. See, I was helping with care, but I'm not the primary caregiver because I can't breastfeed. And they can make a law that men are to breastfeed and I still can't do it. You see? Uh, when, 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 when we get into crisis, we revert to our God-given roles. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, Northern California, up around the California-Nevada border, Sierra Mountains, uh, a husband and wife, little infant, were on a back road. There was a sudden blizzard out of nowhere. They got stranded. They got snowed in. Uh, they had, you know, a few provisions in her purse, some little baby, and things weren't getting worse. The snow was getting worse and worse, and they were, they were socked in. They were snowed in. And it got so bad at a certain point, she got up, made sure he was comfortable with the baby, and then she hiked eight miles to get help. Now, that's exactly what didn't happen. He got up, made sure she was safe and secure and as warm as possible with the baby, and then he hiked eight miles Interesting, when Mary showed me that article and we looked at each other, we were thinking the same thing. When push comes to, when push comes to shove and you're in crisis, we revert to God-given roles. Why did he hike eight miles? Because he's the primary provider. Why did she stay with the baby? Because she's the primary caregiver and she could breastfeed that baby and he couldn't. Okay. That's family 101. Now, what's interesting is, as you go through life, you go through different stages in life. And you get out of the baby stage, and you get out of the diaper stage, and then you're in the next stage, and you get in the adolescence stage, and when they're little, they love you. When they're adolescents, they think you're weird and you're not cool. And then you get through that, and you go, all these days, suddenly you've got an empty nest. And then life's, there's, there's all these changes in life. And as you go through all these changes, you're, you and your wife are working stuff out. Um, and you're working out your teamwork. Um, there's always a challenge. 
I'm not trying to give you a formula, and I'm not even trying to say what you should do. Uh, I, I want to go back. As I read scripture, the husband is the primary provider. So well, my wife makes more than I do. That doesn't matter. I had a young guy tell me that. My wife makes more money than I do. I said, so? Well, you know, I'm not the head of my family. Who said? Well, she makes more money than I do. I said, the text doesn't say anything about how much money you make. God's put you as responsible for your family before the Lord. Yeah, but you know, she makes more than I do. She may make more than you, but that doesn't matter because it's not an issue of money. You've been appointed. I said, it's the Steve Jobs principle. He goes, what's that? I said, when Steve Jobs, after he was fired from Apple, they drove it into the ground. They were so desperate, they called him back, and Steve Jobs went back to Apple. And what was interesting is that everybody that worked for Apple, the lowest paid guy at Apple was Steve Jobs. Yet he was the top guy. Everybody made more money than Steve Jobs at Apple. Everybody. The guy that cut the grass made more money. The guy that cleaned the offices at night made more money than Steve Jobs. Why? Because that's where it was, and Jobs wasn't in for the money. He was trying to rebuild the company, and he did, and then he did pretty well. But when they were in crisis, you get the point. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 5. Are you guys still with me? I know this is radical stuff, but it shouldn't be. It's how people have lived their lives for thousands of years. Uh, it's a team effort. It's hard. You know what? It's so hard to be a single parent. It is so difficult. My gosh, it's so hard to be a single parent. Because really, it's a job that requires two people. And when a family is broken up for whatever reason, it's extremely stressful on everybody because the two are stronger than one. Is that not true? Yeah, it is. Now let's go back to Ephesians. In, in Ephesians 5, we mentioned, and last week I talked about, I talked about the whole issue of uh, authority versus authoritarianism. When the Bible says that the husband is head of the wife, uh, he is. Between two equals, he has given the accountability for the relationship. Even back in Genesis, when they sinned, the woman sinned first, then Adam sinned, they realized their sin, they covered themselves because they were ashamed. God came looking for them in the garden. He knew where they were. He called out to them. Who did God call to? He called to Adam. Who sinned first? Eve. Why didn't he call to Eve? Because Adam was head of the relationship. He was responsible for the relationship. Okay. Um, there are two errors that men can make in their headship responsibilities as husbands. Number one, they can be passive. Okay? Men can become passive. This is a huge problem. Um, passivity basically is in the family leaving it to the wife to do everything and forsaking your responsibility. Uh, years ago, a psychologist in Marin County, that is the county north of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge, very affluent community. This counselor wrote a book called Passive Men, Wild Women. And basically, it was a very small book, but he had a counseling practice to these very wealthy women married to very wealthy men 
who worked in San Francisco and ran companies and made scads of money, and they were aggressive, and they were decision makers, and they were doing this and this, but on their way home, crossed the bridge, as they pulled into the house, these very aggressive leaders, when they got into the family, they became passive, and it drove their wives wild. Passive men, wild women. When a guy gets passive, he leaves everything to her and defers to her, and he's not responsible. That's an error. The second error that a man can get into, and we touched on this last week, is authoritarianism. Not authority, but authoritarianism. Let me give you some symptoms of what it means for someone to be an authoritarian. Uh, a man has moved from proper authority to authoritarianism in his home when he dem demonstrates the following symptoms. Number one, he lacks interest in his wife's input and disregards her feelings. And I'm going to read you two quotes that are not Christian quotes. Okay? The first one is from Aristotle. If you want to be hip and cool, you always quote Aristotle. Okay? Aristotle once said, the female is a female by virtue of a lack of certain qualities. We should regard the female in nature as afflicted with natural defectiveness. That's Aristotle. That's not Jesus. That's not the Bible. Napoleon. Napoleon was reported to have made the following comment. Nature intended women to be our slaves. They are our property. We are not theirs. They belong to us just as a tree that bears fruit belongs to a gardener. That's not a Christian concept. That's as far from Christianity as you could possibly be. All right? So the first symptom of an authoritarian husband, he lacks interest in his wife's input and disregards her feelings. Secondly, he forbids the children to discuss his decisions with him and is reluctant to let them make decisions on their own as they mature. Now, a dad, classic story, a storm somewhere in New England, massive storm, power lines are down, uh, everybody's inside, it passes over, the dad opens the door, little four-year-old girl has been cooped up all day, as soon as he opens the door, she jets out the sidewalk, and there is a live power line whipping through the street up on the sidewalk, and he calls out to her and says, Katie, stop, she keeps going, Katie, stop, she keeps going, Katie, stop, she keeps going as she is in the habit of doing and disregarding her dad, reaches down, touches the power line, and is electrocuted to death. What a tragedy. We can't always explain ourselves to our children. Children have to learn to obey their father's voice. But as kids mature, there are times, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, where there needs to be conversation, there needs to be explanation, there needs to be discussion, there needs to be interaction. Remember talking to John, he wanted to do something, he was 12 years old, he announced to me he's going to the mall with a bunch of kids on a Friday night. He said, it's all set up, Dad. I said, well, yeah, that's great, but you're not going. He goes, Dad, I knew you were going to say that. I said, well, you're a prophet in your own hometown. That's great. You were right. But Dad, I knew you were going to say it. You're so strict. I said, I am strict, John. I am. He said, all the other kids, their dads are going to let them go. Well, I can't help it if their dads are idiots. Now, I didn't say that. I was thinking it. And he said, Dad, there's not one good reason you wouldn't let me go. I said, I got about five good reasons. He said, I don't think you do. I said, well, how about if I give them to you? 
He said, that'd be great. I said, okay, let me give them to you. Here's number one. That mall you want to go to, do you know that about two weeks ago, there was a family sitting in that food court, and there was a guy going up the escalator, and there was a guy coming down the escalator, and they were in two different gangs, and one guy didn't show respect to the other guy, and the other guy pulled out a gun and took a shot at the guy and missed him and killed the father sitting in the food court. Did you know that? He goes, I didn't know that. I said, that's reason number one. And then I gave him some other reasons. I said, I'm not letting you go out there that far away from home on a Friday night when everybody's out there. I'm just not doing it, John. I'm not doing it. I'm not giving in to that. And I know you think I'm strict, and I'm strict, but I'm going to tell you something. When you're a dad and you've got kids that are your age, you're going to be much stricter than I ever thought about being because things are going to be a lot worse. He needed an explanation. I gave it to him. I didn't do it all the time, but there are times when you do it. Here's another symptom of authoritarianism. Uh, the authoritarian man trusts few people. And number four, he, de- he displays an intense need to control those. He, in, he displays an intense need to control those who are closest to him. That's an authoritarian guy. Um, I want to talk about the authoritarian. The authoritarian man thinks that leadership is doing, directing, and controlling everything and everyone in his family. He is a micromanager. He is a, uh, he is a bureaucrat that sucks the life out of people. I have a letter in my Bible that I received from a wife. Uh, Her husband attends this study. That's as far as I'm going to go in terms of details, except I will say this. She wrote to me, and she said, I'm having a very difficult time. And then she started describing her husband's style of leadership, which is authoritarian. Number of pages. Very gracious lady, wants to honor her husband. I'm sure loves her husband. I'm sure her husband loves her. But he feels that he must make every decision. He feels that he has to give her direction on everything, details down to minutia. When a baby is crying, she described for me how hard it is because she feels that she knows what the baby needs, but he steps in and will not allow her to interfere. Um, all kinds of things, nutrition, this, 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 this. You know, there is a Proverbs 31 woman who was described, interestingly enough, in Proverbs 31. She's quite a woman. Um, She is a gifted woman. She is an intelligent woman. She is a smart woman. She loves her husband. She does him good. She looks over her family. Um, She doesn't get a lot of sleep. She cares for her family. She helps with provision of her family. She'll find a field. She'll buy it. She'll sell it. But it doesn't take her away from her family responsibility of nurture. Uh, 
as I read that Proverbs 31 woman, I do not get the sense that she's got a husband who is a bureaucrat that is breathing down her neck and controlling everything that she does in her life. But I get the sense that he's a 1 Peter 3, 7 guy who lives with his wife in an understanding way and grants her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. My job is to live with my wife in an understanding way. My job is to grant honor to my wife. Uh, my wife is gifted. She is smart. She's intelligent. Um, I, I have seen her on numerous occasions sacrifice what's best for her in order to help me and in order to do what's best for our kids. Um, many of you have wives like this. I, I recently read a biography on Ruth and Billy Graham. It was about their marriage. Uh, they, were both, uh, they were both pistols. Ruth Graham was a piece of work. Now, we all know about Billy Graham. He could preach the world. I mean, it was unbelievable, that guy. His energy, his passion. But, you know, and a lot of young guys in ministry, man, I want to be like Billy Graham. I don't think you really do because he would go, it would tear his heart out to have to leave home for three, four, five months at a time. There was no Skype back then. That was hard on him. And it was hard on his wife. Very smart, brilliant, capable lady. Um, they were just people. And as I was reading this biography, when he got famous, they had to move out of their regular house and they bought a bunch of acres, mountain property, you got a deal on it. And back then, no one lived in log cabins, but she got the idea it'd be great to get some of these old log cabins and put them together, and she constructed their home with the help of some workers up there. And he's getting ready to go to Korea or somewhere, and she's telling him the plan. He goes, yeah, that's great. And he's thinking about Korea and the world and, you know, preaching to a million people and all that. And she said, Billy, I think we need five fireplaces in here to heat this place because it's so cold up here. He goes, no, we can do two. She said, two. She said, Billy, I think we need five. He said, two. That's all we can afford. He leaves for Korea. She puts in five fireplaces. <laughs> and when he got back, he was grateful. Uh, you know what was interesting? They were a team. He didn't have time to think about putting that house together. He didn't have time about what the kids would need and the heat. And it makes more sense because we got all this lumber. We got all these trees. It makes more sense to burn wood. And she ran the numbers and did all. It just made more sense. And you know what? She couldn't talk with him. They didn't have cell phones. Communication was tough in the 50s. And she had to make an, exe she had to make an executive decision. But they were a team and he trusted her with her gifts and her abilities. She had certain gifts. He, he, he understood her gifts. He honored her. They were a team. I, I've got another book in here. Martin Luther. I left it on my thing. Martin Luther had a wife. And there are four little bios about Martin Luther, about Jonathan Edwards, about um, John Wesley, and somebody else I can't remember right now. And their marriages. Martin Luther was just, man, he was, he was fighting the whole world. He was standing for the gospel. He, he had threats on his life. They were going to kidnap him. They were going to draw and quarter him. He wasn't married. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic priest, came to know the Lord, was preaching the gospel, uh, rescued some nuns uh, who wanted to 
get out of a monastery and their cloistered life, and they'd heard the gospel. He brought nine of them in. Uh, someone else tried to do it. They got killed by the German Saxon. He rescued them, got them in. Eight of the women found husbands. There was one left who didn't. Someone said, you ought to marry her. He did. Changed his whole life. And it was chaos. And she was always buying a field, buying another farm. They suddenly had 40 people living in their house. She had gardens. She would buy a farm. She would do this and this. And he didn't have time for that. And you know what? But he loved her to death. And they, were, they just worked it out. They were a team. They were t- Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest minds, maybe the greatest mind in the history of America. I mean, he wrote a treatise on spiders when he was 12 years old and was in Yale at 13. He was president of Princeton University when he died. Phenomenal mind, phenomenal Christian, phenomenal philosopher. He had a, did they have 11 or 12 kids? I can't remember. Uh, he'd study 11 hours a day, come home, chop wood to stay in shape. Tried to spend time with his kids. He said to his, I'm reading the book. He says to his wife, hey, isn't it time to uh, mow the hay? She said, it's in the barn. We did it two weeks ago. She knew he didn't have a clue about the hay. He's writing about the sovereignty of God. He doesn't he know about hay. He can't even think of it. Hey, don't worry about it. It's in the barn. Don't worry about it. That's a helper. That's a team. My buddy Wayne Grudem. I'm out of time. This always happens to me. Can I ask you something? Am I making any sense? If you've got a gifted woman, if you've got, at your, at your place of work, if you have a gifted employee, why would you micromanage them? Why don't you let them do what they're gifted to do? You, you know what good leaders do? They look for people who are better than they are in certain areas, and they turn them loose, and you talk, but let them do what they do. I'm always asking God, and this is what God has done in my life. God has always brought people to me who are better than I am in an, in an area of need where I am clueless, and he brings along, the, there are guys in this room that God has brought along in my life to help me in areas of their expertise, and I am clueless, and they know I'm clueless. And why should I give them instruction? I, I'm blind. They can see. This is... My, This is the body of Christ. If I have a wife who is gifted, why would I squelch her? Why would I tell her how to breastfeed? I don't even have breasts that I'm aware of. (laughs) Am I making any sense? My friend Wayne Grudem is a world-class theologian. In fact, this ESV study Bible, he's the general editor of it. For many years, was at Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Chicago, world-class seminary. If I had time, I would read some sections to you, um, an article he wrote when he left Trinity Seminary to go to Phoenix Seminary after 20-some years. This guy's a world-class theologian. He has written more exegetical papers and done more research in the scriptures on husband-wife relationship and publish more than probably any other scholar in the world. He is the go-to guy. In here, he writes about the reason they made the move. His wife has, is it fibromyalgia? Tremendous pain. Chicago's the worst place in the world to live. She was in pain all the time. They visited some friends in Phoenix for two weeks, and she was in perfect health. 
So they would go back, and every time they'd go to Phoenix, she was a new woman. And he started looking at, at her and thinking, and they'd made several trips, and one time he was down there, and he goes, would it not be great if, if we could live here? But I have my work. And they were talking, and he said, I, if, it's just, I wish we could live here for you. And she actually got out the phone book, and she said, there's this thing called Phoenix Seminary which he had never heard of. And he's a world-class theologian. That's because it had just started. And it was a tiny little school. Some evangelical scholars were starting it. He makes contact with them, and they know who he is. This is Wayne Grudem. They're taking the call. And what's interesting is they start dialoguing. And he's willing to step down. Now, his wife doesn't want him to leave because he's in this world-class institution. Would be going to a small situation. But he wants to leave because of her. And it's interesting because the thing that really drove him was that she lived in constant pain. And 20 years before, when they had made the decision to go to Trinity, it came out that she felt like he never really listened to her in regard to making the decision to move to Chicago. So Wayne writes this. He's saying, 20 years ago at the time, I thought that God wanted me to teach at a seminary. And though I had asked Margaret what she thought, I did not honestly listen. I think I failed to understand that. Though the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ as head of the church, a well-functioning head has ears. (laughs) This is from a world-class Greek scholar. That's brilliant. Perhaps if I had listened more and involved her more in the process, many of the details of the decision would have been different. We did go. She was hurt deeply by the way I handled the decision. We paid a price over the next few years in our marriage relationship. At one time, we went to a Christian marriage counselor, a woman we both trusted, to talk through and pray through our situation. It was interesting that the president of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood which was Wayne, the co-author with John Piper of a book called, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who was Wayne, the scholar who had published more technical research than anyone in the world on the meaning of the word head in Ephesians 5.23, he won't say it's him, but it's him, went to a marriage counselor for help in working through his own marriage relationship. Now, you know what? That's a humble man. He could have pulled rank on anybody. He knows the Greek, he knows the Akkadian, he knows the Portuguese. He could pull rank on anybody. It worked out, it was settled, and we were thankful for God's blessing on our time. Years later, they're making it, now they got to face another decision. And, and you know the thing that really struck him in all of this was in Ephesians 5. It says this, so husbands, verse 28, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And he began to think about her pain. And if his body had that much pain, what would he want to do? He'd want to live in a place where he didn't have pain. But she wanted what was best for him, and she felt like Chicago was best for him. And once again, they ran an impasse and they prayed, and they would talk, and they would pray, and they were looking out for one another. And then one night, as they were walking, she said, Wayne, 
I think I know what we should do. He said, really, what should we do? She said, you know, Wayne, you make the decision, and whatever you decide, I'll be fine with. Why? Because he didn't pull rank. Because she knew he cared. Because he knew that he treasured, that he understood, that he honored. You see the difference? Well, I'm done, except for one thing. This struck me driving over here today. In this book, this chapter I've been doing, Husband and Wife Teamwork in the Marriage Cockpit, I told you a few weeks ago there were two chapters I had trouble with in this book. The first one was Save the Boys, and I told you how God helped me with that chapter. This husband, this, this chapter about killed me because it was supposed to be a 5,000-word chapter, and I had about 20,000 words. Because I just couldn't, I just, every time you talk about something you had to clarify, I couldn't get it down. I just couldn't do it. And I worked for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and, I, and the deadline was coming due. And I was speaking at a conference, I think in Boise, and I'm walking in the house, and I had this huge chapter, and I was so frustrated, and I'd been up all night, and I said to Mary, I said, Mary, can you do me a favor? She said, what? I said, that chapter, can you take a look at it? Because I can't do a thing with it, and I've got to turn it in. She said, okay. I took off, went to Boise. I come back late at night, and sitting on the kitchen table is a 5,000-word document called Husband and Wife Teamwork in the Marriage Cockpit. And it was so good. And what she had done, I was too wordy here, and she cut that, and she cut this, but I needed to say more here. And I had this story that I had used for years, and I completely forgot about it. She stuck it in there, and I read that thing, and I went, this is unreal. And I just stuck it in and sent it as it was. And three years later, when they wanted Mary to write a book, they said, we need to see a sample of her writing. I said, you've already got it. (laughs) And they said, what are you talking about? I said, "Uh, chapter 7? She wrote that. It sounded like you. I said, she knows my voice. (laughs) And I, yeah, I had some, it's my stuff, but I couldn't make it work. You know what she did for me? She worked through the whole weekend helping me out with her gifts that I just didn't have. And she made me look good. Marriage is not two people dueling with each other. It's two people out serving each other. That's what the Lord wants it to be. And everybody wins in a deal like that. If you have it, you're blessed. If you don't, I pray God would give it to you. Father, thank you. Only as we're submitted to you can something like this come about. We're all different. We're all flawed. We're all sinners. (sighs) One day, all this sin stuff in our hearts will be over. What a day that will be. In the interim, help us and assist us. Give us a sweetness. Give us a kindness, even as we lead. Give us a sensitivity to our wives and a love and a respect and an honoring of their gifts. And enable us, Lord, to give them room to be themselves. For the guys who are passive, I pray that you will help them to step up 
and do what they need to do in an appropriate, honoring way. We've all got our issues. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.